Welcome back to Create Space, a podcast that finds joy in the art of storytelling. Today, we have another book discussion for you. So I mentioned at the beginning of the summer that I had a series of books that I was going to be reading throughout the summer and we would be discussing as episodes on the podcast. The first book was Creative Confidence uh, by David and Tom Kelly, and we talked about that one, and there is an episode, episode 22, uh, so just a couple of episodes ago, that goes through that book. And this book is called Sapiens, and it's by Yuval Noah Harari. And if you recall, I actually had a quote from Yuval Noah Harari in the very first episode, so the pilot episode of Create Space. He's an, an Israeli historian and philosopher, and he has a lot to say about humans and our history in terms of science and biology and the way that our brains work and what that means in terms of our evolution as a species. So I was really interested in reading Sapiens, and I actually have a couple of books on the docket for uh, that are by Yuval Noah Harari. And what I will say is when I got into reading the book Sapiens, I did not realize what I was getting myself into. With creative confidence, I read it in a week. It was high energy. It was inspiring. It was refreshing. It was just this like motivational book for creators, right? And the podcast episode reflects that. It's, again, high energy, um, it's inspiring, and it leaves you wanting to go create something, wanting to go step into your own natural creative nature. So one type of story, right? Now, Sapiens, I didn't know a lot about it getting into it. I just knew that I had learned a little bit about Yuval Noah Harari. I knew that he had some thoughts uh, about storytelling and humans' cognitive ability to share and process stories, and I knew I was fascinated by that. Uh, But other than that, I didn't know much about it. Now, my parents actually listened to Sapiens uh, as an audiobook. They had listened to it while they were traveling in the car and things like that. And I remember when I told my mom that I was going to review this book or discuss this book rather on the podcast, she said, yikes, be careful. And I remember thinking, what in the world? Like, what are you even talking about? Be careful before I read a book? Like, that's kind of silly, right? And then as I got into it, I totally understood what she meant by that. So what I will tell you about this book is that it does come from an incredibly scientific, biological basis, right? So a lot of this book discusses human history, where Homo sapiens came from, um, in a a way that is very antithesis to the way that a lot of us were raised. So it can be challenging. It can uh, create feelings of defensiveness, I think, um, can rise up depending on how you were raised and depending kind of like what your brain does when people say certain things. So I would kind of say that as a as a precursor that this podcast episode will make your brain work. Now, the way that I'm approaching this book is not from a place of fact versus fiction or right versus wrong or Uh, this is truth and this is not. The way that I'm approaching this book is that we as homo sapiens are the only species in the world that can even talk about stuff like this. And I'll get more into why that is as we start discussing the book. But the fact of the matter is we're the only species that even has the capacity, the cognitive capacity to have a discussion 
about where we came from and about what that means and about what that means for our future. So that in and of itself is kind of why I was fascinated by the book. That speaks to why story sharing is so incredibly important and something that we should be uh, really grateful that we have the capacity to do. So that's my preface. (laughs) Um, You know, if you're someone who doesn't like to hear ideas that might be converse to what uh, your current worldview is, then I don't know that I would suggest this episode for you or the follow-up episode, because I will tell you that I quickly realized I cannot fit this book into one episode. So there's going to be at least one more, maybe two more. I'm not for sure. But it's a 416-page book, and it's a 15-hour audiobook. So I've been kind of doing both, um, a little bit of reading and a little bit of listening to the audiobook. Like I said, this is a book that I had to put down. Um, This is a book that I had to take breaks from because my brain just got really overwhelmed and I had to sort of process and digest the information that I was reading in a way that I did not have to do with creative confidence. So that's also a reason I wanted to break it up into two episodes uh, and again, maybe three, is that I want to give you some space and some time to think about what you think about Harari's words, right? What you think about his ideas and his uh, concepts and and things like that. Um, And also, to be very honest with you, I have 15 pages of single-spaced 12-font notes, (laughs) Um, and that's just from parts one and part two of this book, and there's still a part three and part four. So uh, unless we want like a six-hour podcast episode, I definitely have to break it up. So that's a pretty long intro about this book, but it's it's an intro that I feel like I needed to say because I want to make it very, very clear that I am discussing this book and I am discussing what he writes, what he believes, what he has discovered in terms of biology and science, but I am by no means drawing any judgments based on that. Um, I am keeping my brain open. I am allowing the information to go in and mingle with the other worldviews that I currently hold. And I hope that you will do the same. Uh, And if it does get to be too much for you, if it gets to be something where you're like, no, not into this guy, then just turn off this podcast episode and tune back in when I have something else going on. Because this is, like I say, I recognize that this is going to be a... um, uh, maybe a polarizing episode that might be a love it or hate it episode. I'm not for sure. I don't know. Anyways, let's just get into it. And I'll explain kind of more about my thoughts about it as we as we get into it. Okay. Can you tell I'm nervous about it? I think I'm a little nervous about talking about some of the things in this book. Whatever. Here we go. So Sapiens. In this book, Sapiens, Yuval Noah Harari has divided our history as homo sapiens into three different revolutions. The Cognitive Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, and the Scientific Revolution. So the Cognitive Revolution starting 70,000 years ago, the Agricultural Revolution starting about 12,000 years ago, and the Scientific Revolution starting just 500 years ago. Now, parts one and part two are about the Cognitive Revolution and the Agricultural Revolution. So those are the two things that we're going to be discussing in this episode. Parts three and four are about the Scientific Revolution. So that will all be in episode two of this series and possibly episode three. Again, I haven't finished that part of the book yet, so I just don't know what that's going to look like. So chapter one gives a scientific foundation to the history of sapiens or homo sapiens, which is, of course, what we are. And the only kind of human 
that has existed for the past 10,000 years. Now, it's interesting because we kind of, I think we tend to think of ourselves as the only humans to, to ever exist. But in reality, Homo sapiens, right, were named with both a genus name and a species name. So our genus name is Homo, which is Latin uh, and translates in Latin to man or human, right? Human. Um, our species is sapiens, which is Latin for wise. So that's why Harari refer refers to us as sapiens and not humans, because there were actually many other species of humans or the Homo genus throughout history, the oldest of which dates back to nearly two million years ago. Henceforth, I will try to always say sapiens or homo sapiens when I'm referring to humans, uh, or I might say modern day humans, because as Harari explains, Homo erectus, uh, Neanderthal, and hundreds of other species from the homo genus are also technically humans, okay? So we've discovered a lot of lost relatives of ours and ancestors through fossils, and uh, who knows, you know, how many more might still be undiscovered. And we've all seen the visual of human evolution that, that shows, you know, an ape that gradually turns into today's human. We probably you know, saw it in school. I know I did. It starts with Homo erectus. It moves on up through Neanderthals and then it ends with Homo sapiens. And it's like this kind of hunched over ape that slowly gets taller and uh, eventually ends up looking like what we look like today. Now, Harari says that this illustration isn't correct because it paints a picture of a very linear path, and it suggests that only one species of Homo genus existed on the Earth at any given time, and also that all older species were simply older models of ourselves, right? He says that's not actually true. He says that the scientific record shows that 2 million years ago to 2,000 years ago, the world was actually home to several different species of homo genus or human beings at any given time. And what's really fascinating about this is that multi-species evolution is the norm for Earth, right? There are tons of different species of foxes or pigs or bears. That is common for us to have a genus and then many species within that genus that exist at the same time. But for the past 10,000 years, Homo sapiens have been the only current species to exist in the Homo genus or in the human family. We consider this very normal, but in terms of the history of the Earth and the way that biological evolution tends to happen, it's actually quite peculiar. So if we are sapiens, then what do we have in common with the other ancient members of the Homo genus? Well, a couple of things. All humans, everyone in Homo genus has an extremely large brain compared to other animals. So why are larger brains so rare in other species, other animal species? Well, the larger the brain, the more fuel and resources it takes away from the body. So for example, the Homo sapiens brain consumes 25% of our body's energy when we are at rest. Now, by comparison, the brains of other apes require only about 8% of rest time energy. Also, homo genus or humans walk upright on two legs. This allows our arms and our hands to not be needed for locomotion. 
And therefore, we are left with our arms and our hands to do other things. And the more that could be done with our hands, the more successful we as organisms became. So over time, we developed finely tuned muscles. And now the hands of modern Homo sapiens can do extremely sophisticated tasks like make and use a huge variety of tools, right? So the first manufacture and use of tools dates back to 2.5 million years ago, and it's one of the main identifying criteria that we use to identify ancient humans. Now let's go back to walking upright. That did also come with a couple of downsides. This was super interesting to me. So what he explained was that walking upright required humans to have narrower hips uh, in order to, I guess, keep our balance, I guess, or something to that effect. Um, and this was happening at the same time that human brains were getting larger. Therefore, human heads <laughs> were also getting larger. Now, if you are someone that uh, was born with female organs, you probably get where I'm headed with this, which is that narrow hips and larger heads is kind of a dangerous thing, right? So lots of female humans died from childbirth throughout this evolution because they couldn't birth the large-headed babies through their rapidly narrowing hips. I say rapidly. This is all in terms of thousands and thousands of years, right? Because we're talking about evolution here. So natural selection occurred because the premature babies were the ones, that, ones who survived, and the moms of the premature babies were the ones who went on to have more children. So that's why now our gestational period is a lot shorter than the gestational period of other animal species. And it's also why our newborns are so incredibly helpless compared to other, uh, other animals, you know? So like a foal, for example, can walk just a few hours after birth and kittens can kind of wander off on their own after just a couple of weeks of being alive outside of their mother. But because of our upright gait, we had to evolve for shorter gestation periods. Now, here's where it gets really wild. They say, or at least Harari says that the science shows us, that the shorter gestation period is what gave way to our superior learning abilities and complex social structures. Probably not the only thing that gave way, but this is, this is a part of it, right? So the book explains that most animals are born like a pot coming out of a kiln, okay? So they are hardened. And any attempt to change them will just result in breaking. He says that humans and the way that our brains and instincts and all of that work are born more like molten glass. And we can still be formed and molded to fit different circumstances. And that makes us highly adaptable. So he says that this is the reason why today we can educate right? We can educate our human babies who are so helpless, and we can teach them things like social structures. We can teach them things like complex learning abilities and just other things that other animal species would not be able to be flexible enough or adaptable enough to learn. But we can because our babies are born earlier. Therefore, they're not completely uh <laughs> done cooking, for lack of a better word, and we still have a lot of influence over how they grow after they are born because of our narrower hips, <laughs> because we couldn't birth babies with giant heads. So just a really, really interesting way of, of thinking about that. Now, for two million years, 
human organisms existed with all of these advantages, right? But for two million years, they weren't the current apex species that we are today. So why not? What happened in the past 10,000 years that was not happening for two million years, even though these human organisms that walked upright, that had large brains, that, you know, had uh, babies that they could mold in the way that they interacted with their environments. What was it that kept us kind of in the middle of the food chain and then caused us to ascend so quickly to the top? Well, there's a lot of theories there. One main step towards the race to the top of the food chain was the domestication of fire. So the first use of fire by the human species traces back to about 800,000 years ago, uh, but it wasn't really until probably 300,000 years ago that Homo erectus began regularly using fire. So what this did was it gave humans a dependable source of both light and warmth, and also gave us a deadly weapon that we could use against other predators. And it also allowed us to cook. Now, cooking opened up a whole new world of foods that we could eat because some foods cannot be digested by the human body in their natural form, but they could be digested when cooked. And also cooking, as you know, uh, kills certain parasites and um, bacteria and things like that. So we just had a lot more, again, flexibility in terms of what we ate. Cooking our food also allowed for the evolution of smaller teeth and shorter intestinal tracts, which then allowed for that additional energy that the body had by having a shorter intestinal tract to be used to create an even larger brain. Because again, I, I mentioned to you before that the larger brain takes a lot of energy from the body. So the short intestinal tract allowed the evolution of an even larger brain because it channeled that extra energy that way, okay? Now, when humans domesticated fire, we gained control of a natural force, which is something that no other animal genus had ever done. Only Homo genus has ever gained control of a natural, natural force. And it also gave us the ability to be able to rely on something else besides the strength of our own bodies for survival. So it's unknown exactly when Homo sapiens became present on the Earth, uh, but most scientists would agree that somewhere around 150,000 years ago, there were Homo sapiens in East Africa who looked just like we do now. Now, scientists also agree that about 70,000 years ago, these sapiens started to spread into the Arabian Peninsula. And from there, they quickly expanded into the entire Eurasian landmass. So when the sapiens arrived in Eurasia, most of the areas were already populated by other genus Homo organisms. So what happened to them? Again, as I told you, from 10,000 years ago to today, Homo sapiens have been the only genus Homo species that's been around. Uh, but when Homo sapiens you know, migrated into that area, there were lots of other other homogeneous species that were there. So what happened to them? There are two distinct theories. One is that sapiens bred with other species as they spread out across the world. And so our current form is the result of interbreeding, essentially. And the other theory is the replacement theory. So this tells a very different story that would suggest incompatibility and perhaps even on the extreme side, genocide on the part of Homo sapiens. So this theory suggests that the different species of Homo genus were not sexually compatible and they could not reproduce. So the other species eventually died out or were killed by 
Homo sapiens, and that allowed the Homo sapiens to take center stage. So depending which of these theories are correct illustrates a distinctly different lineage. If the interbreeding species is correct, then sapiens from different parts of the world are part sapien and also part whatever homogeneous existed in that area at the time. If the replacement theory is correct, then every single current Homo sapien can be traced back to East Africa, and we are all pure Homo sapiens. So for a long time, the replacement theory was assumed to be the most accurate. However, in 2010, a DNA mapping research study found that 1% to 4% of Euro European and East Asian DNA was indeed Neanderthal DNA. Then several months later, Aboriginal Australians were discovered to have up to 6% DNA from the Denisovans, which is the homo species that resided in that area most recently before the sapiens took over. So this would seem to prove the interbreeding theory. But more research, you know, is coming out all of the time. And these two discoveries don't entirely prove that the, re the replacement theory is completely wrong. The small percentage of homogeneous DNA uh, would I should say other homogeneous DNA, would indicate that while production was possible between sapiens and other homogeneous species, it was fairly rare, right? Otherwise, those percentages would be much higher. It would seem that about 50 million years ago was kind of the turning point in which Neanderthals, sapiens, and Denisovans were almost entirely different species, species, and enough mutations had occurred that they could no longer reproduce with one another at all. So what this book indicates, or what this book states, is not that the Neanderthals, Sapiens, and Denisovans merged, but that a few lucky homogeneous species kind of hitched a ride on the Sapiens Express, right? And that that accounts for the small percentage of homogeneous DNA that is present in modern sapiens. So again, even scientific information is still theory-based, right? It's still going through the cognitive lens of humans. And that is very, very important to remember. And that scientific fact is proven incorrect or changes all the time. That's part of the beauty of discovery. So Harari goes on to speculate how different the world would be right now if other homogeneous species had continued to exist if we were not the only human beings, which is a crazy surreal thought, right? Since we've been the only human species for 10,000 years, it feels nearly impossible, at least in my brain, to even imagine any other scenario than that. And it makes it easy for us to consider ourselves the epitome of creation, right? And we picture a chasm between ourselves and the rest of the animal kingdom. Now, when Darwin first suggested that we might have come from another species of animals, there was outrage. And, and even now, a lot of people choose not to believe that, or at least choose to believe it in a variety of different ways, right? We, we try to justify like, okay, well, maybe we came from that, but we're still very much the most important species. We're still the, the divine creation, right? And Harari says that perhaps that, that thought of us being kind of the most important species, to ourselves at least, <laughs> is perhaps why sapiens killed off other homogeneous species. So he says that maybe the other species of humans were, and this is a direct quote, too familiar to ignore, but too different to tolerate. 
which is just a really eerie phrase (laughs) that brings about, for me anyways, so many connections to issues that we see in our modern world of something that is too familiar to ignore. So we see ourselves in it, right? But it's too different for us to tolerate it. And therefore, we want to get rid of it. We want to ignore it. We want it to not exist because it confuses us because it's familiar and yet also different. So we don't know exactly why homo sapiens were able to dominate and spread so rapidly into so many different climates while consistently pushing out every other homogeneous species of the time. The debate still rages on. It likely will rage on. Um, Likely the answer has something to do with the fact that we can have this debate at all. And this is exactly what I said at the beginning of the podcast episode, which is that regardless of where you fall in which scientific theory you believe, or whether you even believe any of this is true at all, the only reason you can believe one thing or the other is due to the Homo sapiens' ability to have a shared language and the supreme cognitive abilities that we have, which is fascinating. So fascinating, right? So all of that, everything that we have discussed so far, is literally chapter one of this book. (laughs) I'm not kidding you guys. All of that, chapter one. So we are barely getting ready to start chapter two here, and already your brain is probably swimming. Okay, so let's move on to chapter two. Again, I know it's probably kind of overwhelming that we're 25 minutes in and we just finished chapter one, but hang with me. So chapter two is called The Tree of Knowledge. Now, as mentioned earlier, sapiens have looked like modern-day humans for about 150,000 years. However, scientists think that the internal structure of the brain changed pretty significantly in a much more recent history with advancing the cognitive abilities of learning, remembering, and communicating. So just because early Homo sapiens looked like us definitely does not mean that they thought like us. So somewhere between 70,000 years ago to 30,000 years ago is the time frame that scientists believe cognitive ability in sapiens started to evolve more quickly. This is considered the cognitive revolution. So we aren't sure exactly why this happened, but the dominating theory right now is that genetic mutations in the brain enabled it to think in unprecedented ways. So some people call this the tree of knowledge mutation. And of course, that's a biblical reference to the fact that when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, um, they were meant to have, you know, all of the knowledge, you know, in the world, right? So this theory stems from that. Now, why did the tree of knowledge genetic mutation appear in sapiens DNA and not, say, in Neanderthals DNA or another Uh, homogeneous species. And as far as we can tell, honestly, it was a matter of pure chance. Now, again, and I feel like I've reminded you of this a couple of times in this podcast episode, but I just, I don't think it can be over, over told. Just remember that all of this is scientific theory. All of this is what we know right now. It's what we have discovered based on the way that our scientific methods allow us to learn at this given point in time with our current cognitive ability, right? So why was our language so different and more sophisticated than other animal species languages, right? So every, every animal has some language or some communication ability. 
And in fact, we weren't even the first vocal language. So a lot of animals have vocal languages that use a variety of different calls to mean different things, right? Um, barks or uh, roars or whines or different types of things to, to signal to other animals what they mean. So what most people see is kind of the key difference between modern sapien language and other animal languages is how adaptable ours is. We can use a finite amount of sounds, but we can combine them in infinite ways to convey tons of information. The example that they use in the book is that a monkey, for, for example, could warn its family, be careful, there's a lion. But a modern sapien could say, earlier this morning around the bend in the river, I saw a lion tracking a bison. And she can also describe the exact location and the various paths that lead to that area so that her and her family or her tribe could go and hunt that bison um, or stay clear of that lion. Also, our language is used to track social relationships within our own group. The way Harari describes it, our language was designed to gossip about one another, which is actually really essential for creating social structure within the group. And it sounds kind of like a joke, but it actually helped small bands of people connect and understand who could be trusted and who couldn't. Now, the final thing that is unique about how modern sapiens use language is that we can talk about things that we have never experienced and even things that as far as we know, or as far as we can prove, do not actually exist at all. This is a really important point, and it is unique exclusively to Homo sapiens. Our ability to imagine and make believe, so legends, myths, stories, all of that, no other animal species can do that. So to compare this to the green monkey analogy, the monkey can say, be careful there's a lion, but what we could say, the lion is the mythical spirit of our tribe, right? So we can create meaning and symbolism in a way that other animals cannot. Because of this ability, we can cooperate flexibly with large numbers of people, which allows for a whole other level of communal organization that no other animal species has ever had. Now it's easy and, and quite honestly more comfortable to consider ourselves to be completely different than all other animals. And we certainly are very different in, in a lot of different ways, which we just discussed. But the basic social structure between us and say modern apes are really quite similar. The alpha male structure in the animal kingdom has a lot of similarities with our current homo sapien patriarchy. When someone's trying to gain power within an ape group, they try to get other apes on their side. So they form uh, separate supporting groups and they try to recruit as many fellow apes as they can. And of course, this looks pretty similar to human political parties. Now, in the animal kingdom, or even in archaic Homo sapiens, when a group of people gets to be too big or a group of organisms gets to be too big, the group splinters into two. And this is simply because it's difficult to maintain order in a group of that size. They couldn't keep track of who was eating where, who was sleeping with whom, who could and could not be trusted. So when the group got too large, they couldn't discern a leader for everybody and the group would split into two separate groups. Now this changed with the cognitive revolution, which again began about 70,000 years ago. So let's go back to the gossip theory that we discussed earlier, right? Where sapiens are able to talk about one another 
and were able to understand social connections within our own group, that allowed us to expand to about 150 people by using social hierarchy, right? So because we could understand one another within our species group, our ability to relate to and connect with one another was expanded. Now, even today, that number of 150 is about where we can maintain a group setting where you can intimately know the majority of people without a need for formal ranks or titles or laws. Now, once that threshold is crossed of approximately 150 people, we cannot maintain that basic social structure of maintaining intimate relationships because we can't physically know and understand that many people, right? So when large numbers of people believe in common stories, we can create large-scale human cooperation. So hang with me here. This is what the cognitive revolution was built on, and this is what my entire podcast, Create Space, is about. It is about that the fact that modern humans can share stories, derive meaning, and connect with one another over those shared stories, even when they have never had that experience themselves, that allows us to create huge, large-scale human cooperation that is completely foreign to any other animal species. So examples would include stories about religion, culture, laws, justice, human rights. All of those things are common beliefs that bring strangers together and connect them in a way that is unheard of in the greater animal kingdom. Now, quick caveat, the book uses the word myths and fiction pretty exclusively to describe the cognitive revolution and describe the way humans are able to believe and connect about things that they haven't experienced. Now, I'm going to avoid those words in the podcast, and I'm choosing to use the word story instead uh, because I think it conveys the message without getting into the triggering territory of whether these communal stories that we share are indeed fiction or truth, right? Because if you hear your religion referred to as a myth or fiction, that that can be a little triggering, right? But if you hear your religion referred to as a story, that doesn't necessarily mean that there is a judgment being placed on whether or not that story is true or not. Because in terms of the way community works, it doesn't matter whether the stories are true or not, right? And and again, that's what I kind of mentioned at the beginning of this uh, podcast is that this book can create some feelings of defensiveness in you, depending on what you believe, based on the way that Yuval Noah Harari kind of writes. But as I focus on the topics in this book, what matters is that people believed these stories. People continue to believe them connect through them, and we continue to build communities around them without having experienced them in real life. So I found that kind of while I was reading, I had to very consciously and very intentionally let go of the desire to decide or debate truth and just appreciate what the book was saying about community structure and human organization through communication. Now, that's not to say that truth isn't important. It's simply saying that that's a conversation for another podcast. (laughs) That's not what I'm most interested in. And what Harari is explaining is the function of the human brain and how the ability to believe and trust things we've never experienced allows us to organize in a highly efficient way with an infinite number of strangers, which is 
obviously a clear and huge advantage over other species. We trust what we've heard from other people to be true, and we build our lives upon these shared stories. We make decisions based on these shared stories. We create community based on these shared stories. And we exhibit an intimate trust in one another that no other species has. And that's pretty incredible to think about. And when you think about it, all of history falls into this cognitive arena. We believe what we know to be true about history based on what we've learned from other humans. These humans made up stories based on artifacts. So yeah, there's a lot of facts there, certainly. But at the same time, the way that those artifacts that we have found are contextualized and explained, and even the scientific theories that have been used to discover and analyze the artifacts, are all based on a system that we have chosen to believe is true, even though we've never experienced it. Our entire society and our entire existence is based on the cognitive lens. So here's why this is so fascinating. For animals without this cognitive ability, the only way that their social structures can change or shift is through genetic mutation, which of course takes generations and generations. But for us, we can entirely change our social structures in a widespread species-level way, simply through the power of collective thought. And this can happen in a decade or two, or even less sometimes. Now that idea is equal parts powerfully incredible and also kind of terrifyingly scary. So here's another example. Modern Homo sapiens are the only species to conduct trades with one another. The basis of a trade cannot occur without trust. We trust the value of a dollar, which is a concept that we made up, right? Our economy is built on shared cognition and trust in other humans. Now, this book is seriously the perfect example as to why I have chosen a career in communication, because communication is literally the basis of everything that makes us human, and that is completely wild. The cognitive revolution is the point in which history and culture distinguished itself from biology, okay? Now, up to this point, it sounds like we are more sophisticated in nearly every single way from our ancestors. However, that's not entirely true. In fact, there's some evidence to suggest that our brains are actually smaller and our general knowledge bank as an individual is significantly smaller than our forager predecessors. So in an ancient tribe of sapiens, right, all of them had to know how to survive in all of the ways. But since the cognitive revolution, our innate ability to trust and rely upon one another has allowed us to specialize. So now one individual doesn't know a lot about everything. We know about our own specific expertise, and we trust others to know their own expertise. And that's, of course, how elaborate societies are formed. So as an individual, we are significantly less capable than our ancestors. But as a group, we are so much more powerful and advanced than any other homogeneous species or animal species or even ancient homo sapiens could have ever dreamed of being. All of that is because of the trust and the communication that we have with others in our own species. This cognitive revolution gave way to the agricultural revolution and later to the industrial revolution. And it's also allowed for sapiens to find a loophole in the process of natural selection. Okay, so here's what I mean by that. Now, not only is it just the smartest and the bravest humans and the most adept of us, right, who can survive. Now, we were able to give more menial jobs to people who might not be prepared to take on more advanced jobs. 
And <laughs> and I'm going to jump in here and say that uh, this author, Yuval Noah Harari, has literally no bedside manner. And he doesn't, in my opinion, make a single effort to try to make anything sound kind. So hilariously, when he's talking about this phenomenon where we can kind of find this loophole in natural selection, he calls it niches for imbeciles. And he refers to it as a way for less skillful sapiens to pass their unremarkable genes on to the next generation. So again, no bedside manner, kind of a mean, but you understand it, right? You get what he's trying to say. It allows us to take care of people who maybe would normally be, well, killed uh, and would go the way of, you know, extinction via natural selection. Now, this book does have a whole section about some of the ways that foraging societies were actually healthier and more satisfying than societies that came to form after the agricultural revolution. So societies that, again, had those quote-unquote niches for imbeciles, right? And they discuss uh, a few things. One, foragers had a much more varied and nutritious diet. They worked less. They were less susceptible to disease because they traveled in small bands of people that couldn't spread an epidemic very successfully because there just weren't that many of them. And they were less plagued by famine because they didn't rely on only one or two crops for sustenance, right? They didn't farm yet. So by and large, they were arguably more mentally and emotionally satisfied and physically fit than, say, a peasant who worked in a factory for 10 to 12 hours a day after the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution. So not everything about the agricultural revolution was positive. And in fact, Harari really says a lot of negative things about the agricultural uh, revolution. He does go on to point out that it would be incorrect to idealize the life of a forager and that, of course, they still faced harsh conditions, child mortality was still high, and minor accidents often resulted in death. But I think the point is that not everything is linear, right? Not everything has simply just gotten better as modern sapiens have progressed through the centuries. It's all this web of cause and effect. And they note in the book that we should be careful of idealizing or demonizing any society because all human societies are complex and contextual. And I think that's a really important point to be made that no homo sapiens are or have ever been angels or fiends, right? We are humans. We are flawed. We are complex. Now, there's also a caveat that explains how little we actually know about ancient civilizations and how much conjecture and assumption is used in archaeological findings. As was mentioned previously, every single thing that we know is filtered through the lens of human cognitive function, unless, of course, we specifically experienced it ourselves. And even then, the meaning that we put to our experiences, of course, is based on our own cognition. So all of history, every religion, every law, every story you've ever heard about other parts of the world, every single thing that makes our society function is filtered through the lens of human cognition. And this book reminds us to read, absorb, and contextualize knowledge with this thought in mind. You know, human brains are not perfect. Human brains are not fact. That includes everything in this book as well. It's all a complex web of information and conjecture that has been interpreted in different ways by different people over thousands and thousands of years. And that's something that I do very much appreciate about Harari's approach to writing about human history. He is honest about what things scholars know matter-of-factly and what things that we can only guess about. So he talks about something called the curtain of silence as a way to visualize just how much we don't know 
about those who came before us. There's only so much that you can learn from bones and artifacts, especially considering forager societies from pre the agricultural revolution really didn't have a lot of belongings, right? They, they were traveling around, so they didn't have a lot of belongings that could then turn into artifacts that could be studied. And I think as I've gotten older, I've become more comfortable with uncertainty and admitting that there are just many, many things that I don't know, that we as humans don't know, and that we may never know. I think a lot of people want to come up with a definitive answer to every question because they feel uncomfortable with uncertainty. And I still feel that discomfort 100%. But I think I'm learning to appreciate and embrace the fact that we are part of an expansive cosmos that covers more time and space than we could ever experience or ever imagine. And to me, there's almost a higher level of comfort in just being able to say, I don't know for sure. It could be this way or it could be that way. That's a scary way of thinking, I suppose, but, but it's also quite freeing. And Harari also says that it's still important to ask questions, even if we know we might never learn the real answers to it, right? It's still valuable to recognize and wonder about those who came before us and to discover as much as we can about them because they, of course, set the stage for and ostensibly built the world in which we now live in. So there's a balance there. There's a way of approaching these topics with curiosity and reverence, but not with certainty and rigidity. Now, one of the most important events in history is the journey of Homo sapiens to Australia from Afro-Asia. It was the first time that any human or even any large terrestrial mammal had ever left the Afro-Asian ecological system. What was even more important than the fact that they got to Australia was what they did when they arrived. When the first hunter-gatherers arrived in Australia, that was the moment that Homo sapiens rose to the top of the food chain and went on to become the absolute deadliest species that the planet Earth has ever known. So up until this point, humans had shown adaptability and innovation, but they had only had a negligible effect on their environment. So what I mean by that is they could move into and thrive in a wide variety of habitats, but they had done so without drastically changing those habitats. The new settlers in Australia not only adapted, but completely transformed the native Australian ecosystem. So within just a few thousand years, 23 of the 24 largest species of land animals in Australia had become extinct. Now, over this time period, yes, there were climate and weather pattern changes, but science tells us that humans really played the most pivotal role in the biggest ecosystem transformation that Australia had seen in millions of years. Throughout the entire world, the forager Homo sapiens created the first wave of mass extinctions. So over and over again, every single place that they migrated to, we were seeing these mass extinctions, specifically in the megafauna species. Then the agricultural revolution created a second wave of mass extinctions. And now, of course, the industrial revolution is continuing to do major damage to other species. So we are in this third wave of mass extinctions that are caused almost entirely by Homo sapiens. 
And this is an important perspective. A lot of people think that our ancestors lived in harmony with nature and that our ecological destruction has really only occurred since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. But the truth is that Homo sapiens have been the single most deadly species in the annals of biology. So the entirety of our existence, we have been uh, an incredibly deadly species. Now, hunter-gatherers survived for millions of years without controlling how other plants and other animals lived, okay? So they hunted wild animals and they foraged wild plants. This all changed about 10,000 years ago when sapiens decided and started devoting most of their time to manipulating certain species of plants and animals. So this is when farming entered the equation through the agricultural revolution. It began slowly in southeastern Turkey, western Iran, with uh, wheat and goats being domesticated first. Now, interestingly, no noteworthy plants or animals have been domesticated in about the past 2,000 years. So what that means is that today, about 90% of the food that we eat comes from plants and animals that were domesticated around 2,000 years ago. So this would include things like wheat, corn, rice, potatoes, millet, and barley. Now, the agricultural revolution did not improve our diets, and we alluded to this earlier, but in fact, it made it much worse because it severely reduced the variety of foods that were eaten. And it also made it so that people couldn't weather droughts or insect infestations as good as their forager ancestors because societies were now relying on one or two crops instead of a large variety of foods. So at the time, the agricultural revolution didn't really improve livelihoods that much. So why on earth did we do it if it wasn't improving our lives? Now, the first thing to understand about that is that the rise of farming was a very slow and very gradual process, right? So it didn't happen all at once, but over thousands and thousands of years. Also, it began with a forager group camping for maybe, let's say, four or five weeks during the harvest, and then they'd be nomadic the rest of the year. So it was a slow process, and it wasn't for a long time that people were living in one place permanently. So as farming took hold, it allowed more people to live in one area because one plot of land could grow a substantial amount of food or raise a substantial amount of livestock that could support a larger amount of people than a wild area of land for a forager society. Therefore, in terms of sapiens evolution, humans multiplied significantly more after the agricultural revolution. Now, at the end of the day, it resulted in more work, less prosperity, and increased child mortality. The thought in human society at the time was, if you work harder, your life will get better. However, this wasn't really the case, and over a long, long time, it resulted in a very different type of lifestyle for different classes of people. Now, true to form, Harari is incredibly blunt uh, in this section, and he talks very directly about the downsides of the agricultural revolution, and he compares it to the hustle culture that we see today, which is really interesting to think about, honestly. He talks about all of the things that we've developed that were supposed to make our lives easier or supposed to make our lives more relaxed. So for example, TVs and phones and emails, and we've saved all of this time with these new developments in exactly the same way that people 
started raising crops to better their lifestyle in the agricultural revolution. But do we really live a more relaxed lifestyle? In most cases, no, we don't. The way Yuval Noah Harari says it, we've revved up the treadmill of life to 10 times the speed, and we've made our existences more agitated and more anxious. Now, up to this point, we've discussed the agricultural revolution as essentially a human miscalculation, right? Something that we did that just kind of didn't work out the way that it was supposed to. Harari has described it as an economic and biological phenomenon that occurred due to the random behaviors of humans. There is, however, the possibility that cultural, ideological, or spiritual beliefs also played a role in the agricultural revolution. So there isn't as much evidence of this, but there also isn't evidence that these concepts did not play a part. So there's always the possibility there, right? We'll talk more about this as we work our way through the book, but one concept that is really important is that of evolutionary success, aka larger populations, versus the individual experience. So for example, domesticated cows and chickens have had massive evolutionary success due to the cultural, the agricultural revolution. However, I don't think anybody would disagree that their individual experience is much, much worse than before they were domesticated, right? They have a shorter lifespan. They have loads of suffering with the way that we take care of them. And they certainly would not have these issues had they not been domesticated. So their evolutionary success in terms of the biological aspects is uh, unarguable because there are many, many more of them than existed prior to domestication. But the individual experience is not at all better. So overall, the agricultural revolution is, is a rather controversial part of human history. And you can tell by the way that it's discussed in the book that Harari looks at it as, to be quite frank, kind of a mistake. And, and I can appreciate what he's saying, but I also struggle to think that the life of a forager would be you know, more satisfying than than what I have now. Um, but that's also because I have a difficult time even imagining what that could look like. So I don't know. Honestly, I'd be really curious to know what you all think about that. And it really just in general, that's my favorite part of this book is just how much it makes you think and wonder and ponder different ideas and concepts that, at least for me, I've really never spent a moment considering before, right? A lot of this stuff I've just never even thought about. And there was really inter- one really interesting comment that Harari made about the differences pre and post the agricultural revolution. And that is that the agricultural revolution made us have to focus on the future in a way that we had not before. So foragers lived hand to mouth, right? They didn't have many possessions because they were always moving around. They didn't worry about harvest because they just gathered and hunted whatever was in season at that moment. And they only foraged what they could eat in a meal or two because they had no way to preserve or carry extra food with them. So with the rise of farming, we started to stay in one place. That allowed us to accumulate material possessions, and we started to rely on only a few domesticated crops. So we had to start focusing on a season of cultivation, followed by a season of harvest. Instead of just going where the food was, we had to learn to plan for the future by growing more food 
than we could consume in the cultivation period so that we would have reserves built up. And that's something that I never really considered before either. And I see it as both a blessing and a curse, I suppose, because on the one hand, it's amazing that we can plan our future and orchestrate kind of what we want our experience to be. And the fact that we have the capability to do that is is really cool. But on the other hand, we all know that we can't entirely control the future, right? And sometimes, maybe a lot of times, depending on who you are, we focus too heavily on what's to come instead of existing in the present moment. So again, and as usual, two sides of the same story and loads to sit with and ponder. Now, one part of the agricultural revolution that definitely was not a positive thing was that it grew economic and political divisions, and it created a much more distinct gap between the peasants and the elite than what we had seen in forager existences before. Very quickly, it became a situation where the peasants were working really hard, hoping to gain financial security, but they spent most of their time supporting the elite, and they had a really hard time actually getting ahead. And again, I don't think anybody would disagree. We see that amplified tenfold today. So this type of divide in terms of class really was not seen as much in earlier forager communities. Now, there's a section of the book that dives deep into kind of the class system uh, and what that looked like in early Homo sapien society. And it specifically dives deep into the excerpts from, a few excerpts from Hammurabi's Code, which was a document that was written by the Babylonian king Hammurabi. So at this time, the Babylonian empire was the largest ruling empire in the world. And there was more than a million subjects that were in this empire. And what I'll tell you is that reading these excerpts made me sick to my stomach to see just how much uh, sexism and also classism was directly written into this document. Now, I think most of us have heard of Hammurabi's Code, uh, and probably not in a good light, but uh, I'd never actually read any of it. I don't know if any of you had. But basically, Hammurabi's Code divides humans into two genders, so male and female, and three classes, superior, commoner, and slave. So this document that was drafted by Hammurabi states a certain crime, and then it lists the punishment associated with that crime. But the punishment is different depending on the gender and class of the perpetrator of the crime, and also the gender and class of the victim of the crime. So for example, listen to this. If a superior man, so the top class, right, if a superior man were to hit or beat a superior woman and that beating should cause her to miscarry her fetus, he shall be required to deliver 10 shekels of silver for her fetus. Now, if that superior woman were to also die from the beating, then the punishment is that the superior man's daughter would be killed. Those are rules that, that were outlined in 209 and 210 of Hammurabi's Code. Now, rules 211 through 214 explain how the punishment changes for the same crime, depending on the class of the victim. So if the superior man does the same thing to a commoner woman, middle class woman, then he shall only have to give five shekels of silver for the fetus. And if the commoner woman also dies, then he must give an additional 30 shekels of silver for her life. 
If the superior man does the same thing to a slave woman, then he shall give two shekels of silver for the fetus and 20 shekels of silver for the slave woman if she were to also die. So let's just take a minute to break that down, shall we? According to Hammurabi, a superior fetus is worth 10 shekels, a commoner fetus is worth five shekels, and a slave fetus is worth two shekels. Also, a superior woman's life is equal to taking another superior woman's life, so in this case, the superior man's daughter. A commoner woman's life is worth 30 shekels, and a slave woman's life is worth 20 shekels. Now, Again, it breaks my heart to see it all written out so deliberately, but at the same time, we have to recognize that, in all honesty, our justice system still operates in a pretty similar way a lot of times. We just aren't as blunt and direct about it. We don't own it, right? We turn a blind eye to it and we pretend that it isn't happening, but we still see this value placed both in gender and also in class situations. Now, the most interesting difference that I saw is that Hammurabi's code places more importance on the life of an adult woman than on that of the fetus. So even the superior fetus is worth less at 10 shekels than a slave adult woman at 20 shekels. And and that's interesting to me because I think those values look a little bit different today according to some of the legislation that we've seen in the past several years. And I think that the value of the fetus at least a superior fetus anyhow, would probably be considered more valuable than at least a lower class adult woman. And yes, of course, that's my, you know, political leanings coming out there. But there's a lot of evidence to support that claim. So then Harari goes on to compare Harabi's code, Hammurabi's code, code, excuse me, with the American Declaration of Independence. So both documents were meant to outline the requirements for a society to be run justly and successfully. Both documents were written on the basis of rights that were endowed to humans by a divine creator. Now, Hammurabi's code relied on classes of people and everyone knowing their place. The Declaration of Independence, conversely, bestowed certain unalienable rights to all people on the basis that all humans were created equally. However, Harari comes in and he drops this bomb about how he says they're both wrong, because biologically speaking, humans are neither inherently equal or unequal. So for this next section, I'm going to actually read you an excerpt from the book here. So this is from page 108 and 109. And I'm going to read it to you because it's written in such a way that I cannot explain it in my own words. So you just have to hear the way he says it verbatim. Okay, so again, this is from page 108 in Sapiens. Hammurabi and the American founding fathers alike imagined a reality that was governed by universal and immutable principles of justice, such as equality or hierarchy. Yet the only place where such universal principles exist is in the fertile imagination of sapiens and in the myths that they invent and tell one another. These principles have no objective validity. It's easy for us to accept that the division of people into superiors and and commoners is a figment of the imagination. Yet, the idea that all humans are equal is also a myth. In what sense do all humans equal one another? Is there an objective reality outside the human imagination in which we are truly equal? Are all humans equal to one another biologically? 
let us try to translate the most famous line of the American Declaration of Independence into biological terms. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. According to the science of biology, people were not created. They have evolved. And they certainly did not evolve to be equal. The idea of equality is inextricably intertwined with the idea of creation. The Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we don't believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? Evolution is based on difference, not equality. Every person carries a somewhat different genetic code and is exposed from birth to different environmental influences. This leads to the development of different qualities that carry with them different chances of survival. Created equal should therefore be translated into evolved differently. Just as people were never created, neither, according to the science of biology, is there a creator who endows them with anything. There is only a blind evolutionary process, devoid of any purpose, leading to the birth of individuals. Endowed by their creator should be translated simply into born. Similarly, there are no such thing as rights in biology. There are only organs, abilities, and characteristics. Birds fly not because they have a right to fly, but because they have wings. And it's not true that these organs, abilities, and characteristics are unalienable. Many of them undergo constant mutations, and they may well be completely lost over time. The ostrich is a bird that has lost its ability to fly, so unalienable rights should be translated into mutable characteristics. So that's the end of the passage. And again, that whole section was read word for word from the book. Okay. Now, <laughs> let's all take a breath and appreciate and understand that there's a lot to unpack there, right? And in fact, this is actually where I'm going to leave you for this episode. Now, the reason for stopping at this point uh, in the book is, well, for a couple of reasons. One, it's just already a really long episode. And two, this book is a challenging read, okay? It really is. It is directly converse to what I was taught and probably to what a lot of you were taught as well. But I love it for that reason because it makes you think, it makes you question, it makes you wonder. To me, curiosity is and has always been one of the most amazing skills that we have as humans. Our ability to wonder and to listen and absorb knowledge and change our opinions and ideologies based on new information is incredible, right? Or to not change our ideologies, right? We can also absorb new information and say, I don't quite connect with that. I don't really think that that changes my, my ideology. So I think what I'd like to leave you with for this episode is that I hope that you were able to listen with an open mind and that you don't feel like it requires you to completely overhaul whatever faith or moral system currently governs your life. You know, I will admit that Harari might disagree with me on this, and he might say that this book is 100% fact and science and that it disproves religion and it disproves spirituality. But I, I don't think that it does. I think it just opens up new ideas. So one thing that Harari and I would agree on is that we're the only species to ever exist that even has the ability to share stories like this and engage in debate 
about where we came from and why. We can give meaning to things. That's unique and that's amazing. So again, I've had to take a lot of breaks on this book because it gets really intense and it causes you to think about things that you've probably never thought of before. And depending on where you're at in your thinking and where your worldview currently sits, you might feel some defensiveness towards this podcast episode or towards the book in general, uh, or you might have really clicked with it and you might um, you know, really appreciate Harari's viewpoints. Or another option is that you might be like me and you might just enjoy hearing stories that are told in a different way and again, being open to new possibilities. What I keep doing as I read this book is I try to notice my initial emotional reactions to some of the things that he says. And I will say like the passage that I read you, you know, directly, I had a pretty strong emotional reaction to that. And then I stop and I think to myself, what made me react that way, right? I don't judge either myself or Harari uh, or the book for that reaction. I don't tell myself that I have to agree with and get down with every idea and concept that he illustrates, but I also don't have to negate every idea and concept that he illustrates. So I appreciate that this book is written through the contextual lens of Yuval Noah Harari in the exact same way that every story and every single book is always written through the contextual lens of the person telling the story. And that, my friends, is the importance of storytelling. That's what Create Space is about. That's what makes our lives so rich and so interesting and so different than any other species to ever live on this earth. So regardless of what your own contextual lens is, just know that you have one and I have one. And that is magic. So I'm going to follow this episode next week with a guest interview episode. And then we're going to come back for at least one more episode to finish talking about this book, maybe two. This first episode got through parts one and two, but there are still parts three and four. And again, we are going to tackle those for sure. But I want to give my brain and, and yours a break. And I want to listen to something a little more fun and a little more refreshing and a little bit less heavy and, uh, you know, thought provoking, still thought provoking, but in a different way. But I really do believe that there's a place for every single story here at Create Space. And I am very intentional about the way that I line them up so that it makes sense and it allows people to properly digest the information. So thank you for hanging with me in this episode, as I know that it was a big one. And if your brain went in as many different directions as mine did, then you're probably mentally exhausted right now. This also, I think, is the longest longest episode that I've ever done. So we'll see if the second half of Sapiens makes an even longer episode. Who knows? I'm trying to distill it down, honestly, as much as I can, but it's really hard. So Go take a break, have a snack, listen to some music, take a walk or whatever it is that you need to do right now. And I will see you back here next week on Create Space. 